September 30th, 1862, a woman by the name of Sarah Pardee married a young man named William Winchester. Since uh, William was the only child, he became the sole heir to his father's fortune. His father's name was Oliver Winchester and was the inventor of the repeating Winchester rifle, the rifle that uh, played, among others, uh, a leading, perhaps a key role in the Civil War, giving the Union Army quite an advantage. William Winchester inherited a fortune. Four years after they married, they had a little girl who died only after just a couple of weeks. This threw Sarah into a deep depression and Her grief was only compounded when four years afterward, her husband, William, died of tuberculosis. She was left with millions of dollars plus a guaranteed income of $1,000 a day. But it couldn't buy happiness or relief from her growing fear of death. Sarah either knew nothing of the gospel, as I researched her story, I I located where she lived and grew up, and it was quite a place to grow up as it related to the gospel in Connecticut in her day. She either didn't hear it, which would be surprising, or she chose to disbelieve the gospel of Christ. Instead, she began going to spiritualists and mediums for counsel. One medium told her that the Winchester family was indeed cursed because of the invention of the rifle, which had been used was being used in the deaths of so many people. The only solution he told her to her grief was uh, this one option, which would protect her, in fact, uh, throughout life. She was told to move west and build a home for herself and for all of the spirits of people who had died from a bullet coming from a Winchester rifle. This was her only uh, salvation She was told that she must never stop building her house and promised that as long as she built, she would live. If she ever stopped building, she would die. She believed that. She moved to San Jose, California, where she purchased a six-room farmhouse from a doctor and began to build and build and build for 38 years, 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, something was being built, renovated, added on to at that farmhouse, which is now a museum, this Victorian mansion. Every morning, Sarah met with her foreman to sketch out some new room or addition. Rooms were added on to rooms. Towers and peaks were built. Uh, she spent literally her inheritance of $20 million building onto that house and lavishly furnishing the rooms for her spirit uh, guests. Because she was building for spirits, and well, because she must never stop building, stairways led to nowhere, doors opened into walls, hallways doubled back on themselves. She was fascinated as well by the superstition of the number 13, and she built that into her house. All of her windows had 13 panes She built 13 bathrooms. When she died, she left her will composed of 13 sections. She had signed 13 times. But in spite of the promises of mediums and spiritists and spiritualists 
In spite of faith and a family curse, in spite of her fortune, on September 5th, 1922, at the age of 83, Sarah Winchester died. The building finally stopped and now the curious can pay a fee and see this mansion located in San Jose on Winchester Boulevard. The truth is, there is some truth here, there is a family curse, but it's worldwide. It is fatal. It's the curse of sin. In fact, the human race is condemned already, Christ said in John 3.18. John the baptizer adds this ominous warning in the same chapter near the end of the chapter as he says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever disbelieves, I think you could translate it, whoever disbelieves the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is already upon the unbeliever. It will be fully unleashed in this everlasting judgment of hell prior to that individual application of God's wrath is a demonstration of his wrath that reaches around the globe during this time we've been studying that we call the tribulation period. This is the wrath of the Lamb, to be specific. And as it begins to be unleashed upon humanity, four horsemen we have discovered come thundering from the presence of God. There is no medium, there is no spiritualist who can provide some escape, there's no attachment to some superstition, there's no number that will help, there's nothing to stave off disaster after disaster after disaster in this coming world madness. It's the best way I can think of describing it. In Revelation 6.1, if you've been with us, We reached that point. The first horseman came riding on a white horse. He's the counterfeit prince of peace, offering a brief time of peace, affecting, for the most part, Israel. In verse 3 of the same chapter, the second horseman comes riding upon a blood-red horse. He rides in to incite global unrest and murder. It's as if a blackout hits the planet, rioting and looting break out all over the planet. If that isn't bad enough, now the Lamb will open the scroll just a little further as he breaks another seal and another rider mounts up. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. He's literally holding a... A zugas. It's the metal beam from which are suspended the two plates on either end from which they weigh produce or food uh, products. Now, there's no reason to wonder uh, what these scales symbolize, for we're told in the middle part of verse 6 look there, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley. For Daenerys. In other words, it's measuring out this uh, wheat and barley for food. One quart of wheat in John's day was just a little less than our day, but one quart would basically in the first century represent the daily need for one person to survive with just enough food. The denarius was a simple Roman silver coin. It represented a day's wage. They were typically the common man paid at the end of each day. In other words, there would be enough 
Uh, enough wheat to feed one man for only one day and it would cost the entire day's compensation. Now let me put that into today's economy. Suppose that you work uh, at McDonald's. You probably feel you're already in the tribulation, but suppose you're there working and uh, you work eight hours tomorrow. You're going to make $6.15 an hour. That's minimum wage in North Carolina. The good news is next summer it's going up to seven twenty-five an hour. But before you get too excited, imagine if this biblical scene is unfolding now, you would need every bit of Monday's income, about $50, to buy one loaf of bread. $50 for a loaf of bread. And you can't eat at McDonald's either because, by comparison, a Big Mac would cost about $100. So you gather the family around, you know, your pay that you brought home, and you decide what you're going to do. Um, and, and, you, and you realize that you really can't afford to buy a quart of wheat to make just enough bread for one person. Everybody else in the family needs to eat. So you decide you're going to eat three quarts of barley. You could feed then perhaps a small family if you had a job and if you got paid and if the barley was available one day at a time. And by the way, coarse barley in the days of John was for animals and extremely poor people. This is, in effect then, runaway inflation. These figures here, some have estimated about 15 to 18 times the normal costs or cost of living. Following the outbreak of universal war and rioting, as we studied Uh, It's no surprise then that earth is sort of plunged then into worldwide famine. It's interesting to note, by the way, this little phrase at the end of verse 6 that indicates the fact that oil and wine would not be harmed. Death, Hades, was not to harm this or these particular elements. Olive oil uh, and wine would be the luxuries of the rich, the staples of life, wheat and barley, uh, were being weighed out one pinch at a time, but the wealthy were basically unaffected. Another seal a little later on uh, will cover their own tribulation. So this, this informs us then that the disparity between the rich and the rest of the world will become more and more apparent. It, it grows deeper and wider. You have very wealthy people, and then the rest of the world is poor, basically writhing with a hunger. This type of disparity is certainly around today. I can remember visiting India, leaving the squalor of poverty, uh, passing people begging. Uh, it seemed that everyone was living on their last meal and entering the gates of this compound where we were having this conference for leaders in India and literally the gates opened and we, and we drove into manicured lawns and the most opulent hotel I have ever to this day ever stayed in. It was all marble and seemed to be plated gold. Outside, incredible poverty. That's a picture here of this kind of disparity where most will suffer until the later seals, the rich, will get away with it. I researched briefly to get some form of comparison in my own mind the great famine of 1315, which many believe set the stage for the bubonic plague, which would come later. And it's interesting how some of this stuff 
is affecting the same sequence in Revelation chapter 6, although it will be a much grander and greater and more horrific scale. The Great Famine of 1315 affected much of Europe. Stores of grain and luxuries were limited to nobles and royalty, but they still had everything they wanted. The rest of the world was starving, at least Europe. Children at this, in this great famine were abandoned, often by parents left to fend for themselves. Uh, numerous reports of cannibalism as well of young uh, children. This great famine of 1315 became the backdrop for a, an original German tale of two children abandoned by their father in the woods during a time the famine only to be captured by a woman who planned to cannibalize them, but they outwitted her, stuffed her in the oven instead, stole her jewelry, made it back to their father, now having enough food to live, and they, he and his children, Hansel and Gretel, uh, lived happily ever after. I hate to ruin a good story for you, but, but that's the origin of it. There's no happy ending in Revelation 6. The world is teetering on bankruptcy. World economies in this scene are shifting and, and moving. You know, we think of our own problems. We think of a gasoline spike or flooding in the Midwest or uh, maybe an Asian tsunami that, that, that decimates so many people. These are mild. These are distant, sort of distant thunderclaps of a coming storm that affects the entire world. Frankly, the coming black horse representing famine is difficult to grasp, even as you try to climb into this scene, especially in our culture today. We're all well-fed. We're all overfed, aren't we? So to talk about famine, it brings no horror to our minds because we've never gone without, for the most part. Maybe some of you have, but you know, my idea of skipping or going without is skipping a snack before bedtime. Am I going to have that bowl of ice cream or not? And, and no, I'm not. And with great resolve, I, I, I don't. You remember growing up, sitting at the table with the plate that everything was gone except a few things? They're usually round and green. At least in my life they were. And, you know, my parents tell me, you know, there are starving kids out there. That didn't help. Did it help you? So why are you telling your kids the same thing? Okay, stop it. It doesn't help. Which didn't help me anymore as well to tell my parents that they wouldn't eat this either if they were here. But at any rate, the tragedy is that in our culture, we represent the royalty and the nobles. There is truth to what our parents told us. By the time it takes us to eat our lunch today, 400 people will starve to death somewhere in the world. The average American dog has a higher protein diet than half our world today. And I don't know about your dog, but mine still complains. <laughs> Won't eat some of the stuff I give her. You can have her after the service if you come see me, by the way. <laughs> Let me just get off track here a little further. You know, one of the great challenges in addressing the poverty of our world now is corrupt political systems and, and the sinful greed of human hearts so much so that the food we do send to starving people is often never reaching their mouths. We saw this only recently in our humanitarian efforts to those 
devastated in China. You remember, we watched as corrupt officials were caught taking supplies and selling them on the black market rather than giving them to the poor. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that our own relief efforts going on right now in China are partnering with Christians who not only deliver food to those who are needy, but deliver the gospel to those. We understand, don't we, that people who are full still die and can go to hell, as well as people who are hungry. So we must attach it to the gospel. Our mission is not solving world hunger. Our mission is spiritual hunger. Now, if we can feed or help people physically and use that as a bridge to feed them spiritually, it's a, it's a double win. We help them temporarily, but we give them greater help eternally. In fact, consider this. If the rapture were to occur and the tribulation break out in a year or two, we would be giving food, if that's all we did, to people who will actually face the horror and deprivation of this coming famine, which will make their famine seem like nothing. There is a coming world famine. And everything we see here and now, I believe, would be, as Christ said to those who wondered about suffering in his world, are warnings to repent. And it only gets worse. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that he then opened the fourth seal, and I heard the, the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a, a pale horse. By the way, the word pale is, is the word chloros, which gives us our word chlorine. It's, it's a word that refers to pale Something that's pale green. In fact, it's used later in Revelation for dying vegetation. It was used by the ancients to refer to the decay of death. In fact, in the 5th century B.C., Lucidides used this word here uh, for the appearance of people dying in a plague. Uh, Without a doubt, the color is sickly and it's going to be very unnatural to be the color of a horse. As death comes riding. And by the way, it's interesting that this fourth and final horse is the only horse of which we're given the name of its rider. Did you notice that? And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the world's population. As bad as it's been, as horrific and devastating as it's been, here comes death riding a pale green horse. And in the wake of this horseman, one-fourth of the world's population is going to die. Let that, let that strike you for a few minutes. By the way, there's never been a time when the result of all four horsemen occurred in overlapping sequences of time. There's never been a time in world history when this kind of world madness with all of these effects was felt universally at the same time. Certainly, one-fourth of the earth's population has not been killed in such a short amount of time, nor has it been calculated in history. This is all yet future. This is all yet to come. But if the tribulation were to begin in our generation, what this means is that about one billion people would die In just a few months. It's staggering. Well, how does God destroy so many people at one time? What are the secondary causes of his wrath? We're given four of them in this text. We're told that it's going to be 
the sword, notice the latter part of verse 8, and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. The first cause of death is the sword. I believe with many others this is a reference primarily to death by murder. This is the deadly assault of individuals upon other individuals. Can you imagine a time when you have nothing to eat? Can you imagine a time when the world is chaotic? It is, it is, it's been struck with so many natural disasters one after another. And now there's no food. And there are dead lying everywhere. And you've got to eat. Can you imagine the killing that will take place? Certainly wars that have begun earlier will restart and new wars begin. Everybody will take the law into their own hands. The second thing mentioned or the cause of death is famine. This is more than likely the culmination of lingering starvation that's already begun. As those who've somehow hung on and foraged enough for maybe another little bit to eat finally run out of options and starve to death. The third cause of death here is pestilence. The Greek word is the normal word translated death. However, Ezekiel used this word to speak of these times in Ezekiel 14, 21 as as plagues to cut off man and beast. That's how he uses the word. Can you imagine the effects of worldwide hunger and bloodshed, loss of civility, the loss of the value or respect for human life? It's the survival of the fittest and the fastest and the strongest and the meanest. Death and, and disease, corpses lying everywhere. Epidemics, this pestilence he speaks of, will, will spread like wildfire. And you think, oh, well, that's going to be so far from now because we've got so much stuff under control now. We've just begun to be aware that we really don't, do we? The, the, the optimism of the 70s that spelled the end of super microbes at least to the public eye. Now, in the early 80s, when this strange new disease surfaced, called AIDS, transmitted through a number of ways, primarily through sexual activity, which is why the media shuts down most talk about it. But think of this, what we aren't told. I just did some calculations again this week. Just in the last three years, more people died from AIDS than live in the state of North Carolina. Just in the last three years. 8,000 people are dying every day. Add to that, according to one Newsweek article, 30 new diseases have cropped up in our own generation. We now talk about, know about, a little bit about Ebola and Mad cow disease and avian flu and Lyme disease and SARS and West Nile virus and on and on. The Institute of Medicine says matter-of-factly, and I quote, infectious disease will continue to emerge. Then you throw into that biological warfare and weapons that are going to be unleashed in these wars as the red horse rides through and Weapons containing smallpox and anthrax and Ebola are already prepared, ready to go. It's it's obvious that hundreds of millions of people could die on this planet through pestilence easily without very little imagination at all in a very short period of time. And these are just the beginning days. 
These are just the beginning days. These are the beginning of birth pangs. This is the outset of it. These are the first three and a half years. Yet future, this is just the beginning. And those that believe that the rapture is going to occur somewhere at the midpoint of the tribulation because that's when the real wrath of God and that's when bad stuff really happens on earth have not studied these four horsemen enough. This is pretty bad. One out of every four people on the planet die. There's one more cause of death. A little harder to discern what he means here. John writes of the wild beasts of the earth. You could certainly interpret this as a reference to carnivorous animals that are now loose and on the prowl during these kinds of conditions. Some believe then it would be a reference to lions, bears, tigers, wild animals that are coming to, you know, on the rampage. My primary objection with that interpretation is that carnivorous beasts will have all they want to eat among the starving and the dead worldwide. Some believe this is a reference to the Antichrist, given the fact that the word for beast here in this text, Therion, is used throughout uh, the book of Revelation to refer to the beast, the Antichrist, and his false prophet. I wouldn't interpret it that way either, simply because at this point in the tribulation, the Antichrist isn't killing people. He's still assuming this, this role of peacemaker. He's still gaining the credibility and the ultimate loyalty of the world. So I don't believe it's him. I would, I would place these wild beasts in the way it's, it's structured here in close connection to the preceding cause of death, which is plagues. Animals bearing plagues. Wild animals that bring death, perhaps not through eating people, and again, the reasons I've given you. And you think of the most dangerous animal on the planet even today, far more dangerous than lions, tigers, and bears, is the common rat. Carries at least 35 known diseases. Its fleas carry bubonic plague. History verifies what can happen as it did in Europe 600 years ago. Millions were, were killed. They also carry typhus, which has killed an estimated 200 million people over the last 400 years. They may very well be these wild animals that John has in mind who bring great death. So you have sword, and you have the famine, and you have a pestilence, and then you have these disease-carrying animals that are running loose. Now, if you look closely at verse 8, you'll notice that this pale horse has someone following him. John writes, the writer's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Wherever death rides, Hades is like this shadow. I believe this is God's way of warning humanity and all those who refuse to believe the gospel of Christ that death is not the end of suffering. It isn't the end. After death, Hades, the place of torment. You have death that takes the body and Hades that takes, as it were, the soul. Hades is the Old Testament counterpart to Sheol. It is the place where even to this day the souls of unbelievers go after death. Where they await the ultimate verdict that will occur later on in the book of Revelation. And then Hades will be emptied into the lake of fire which we refer to as hell. It's a place of conscious 
self-awareness. It is a place of physical suffering with an intermediate body or senses capable of suffering torment. Christ described the man suffering in Hades who cried out in Luke 16, 23, I am in anguish in this flame. So Hades, rightly so, comes behind death as it were, to take all the souls of the unbelieving who die in the tribulation. And these souls, along with all of the unbelieving of all of time and human history, are even now waiting, tormented, condemned, without appeal, awaiting their final judgment and delivery over to eternal hell. And maybe you're saying, you know, that's why I don't like coming to church. I don't like coming to church because every time I come, you're talking about hell. Fire and brimstone. Well, I don't talk about it every Sunday. Maybe God's just timing it when you show up that I, that I do. I don't know. Do you think for a moment that eternal hell is something that I would choose to preach on? Do you think that, that this is something that the clergy have, have created to scare people into being nice? And clock in at church and give a little bit of money to charity. Now this is for real. And you cannot teach through the Bible without dealing with the subject of judgment and hell. It's the gospel. It's the truth. There is a real eternal hell to shun. More horrific than we could ever imagine. And there is a real Glorious new heaven and new earth to enjoy. It is more wonderful than we could ever imagine. And the turnstile that determines which way you spend all of eternity is in the form of a cross. And the one upon it who paid the penalty for your sin and mine, in fact, the sin of the whole world. Listen again to the warning. Whoever, John the baptizer said, has the son, has life. Whoever disbelieves the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God remains on him. Imagine the horror of that implication. This isn't temporary. This isn't three and a half years. This isn't seven years. This is forever and ever and ever and ever. I wouldn't believe it if the Bible didn't teach it. The thundering of these four horsemen and the coming world madness with all its terrors as God unleashes his wrath upon the planet is still nothing to compare to having the wrath of God remain on you forever. Perhaps you've been brought here, my friend, to hear one more fire and brimstone message so that maybe today, and this is our prayer, you will believe. Christ alone. Amen? Amen. You just heard the amen of people who would pray that that would be so in your own life, that you would believe today. Well, how do you end this, a series on the four horsemen? I mean, this is the cliffhanger of all time. If the rapture happens, it won't matter, right? How do you wrap it up? Well, as I prop my feet up on my desk and thought through what might be the residual effect of this study in my own heart, I jotted down four words. Maybe you'll have four more or four different ones, but these four come to mind. The first is motivation. 
The potential of the church age as we know it ending and in our lifetime causes me to want to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ with every means possible, in every way possible, and at every chance. It's motivating. Evaluation. The end of days as we know them causes me to not only want to communicate the gospel, to to confirm the sincerity of my faith in Christ. And yours too. Is your testimony a card you signed as a kid at camp? Is it because you got water on your forehead or on your whole body at 12? Is that it? Or is, is it a living relationship today with a living Lord? Evaluate yourself, Paul, in fact, told the church in Corinth to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You say, well, he'd be asking pagans that. No, he asked the church that causes me to evaluate where do I stand with God? Anticipation is another word. Anticipation, to cling to the promise of his coming and love and long for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 8, knowing that before these horsemen thunder from the skies, should we be alive, we're going to be raptured to meet the Lord in the skies. To long for that day when we meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. Motivation, evaluation, anticipation, and exaltation. The soon coming of Christ and the glory of his victory and the splendor of his kingdom and then the eternal state all make me want to even now honor and exalt and glorify Christ in my life. Because all that matters is what matters to him. And doing it in a way that would please him, whether it's washing dishes or cutting the grass or fixing a computer or preaching a sermon. This one will soon come. And we with him. And written in his vestments on his thigh is his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the four horsemen in this world scene, which is horrific, is a reminder as we study that all of us have been born into the wrong family. It is cursed, indeed. There isn't nothing we can do to escape apart from Christ and Him alone. And those who come to faith in Christ, trusting in His cross work alone, leave, as it were, the funeral procession, which is only going to accelerate in this day, and we join the wedding march as a part of the bridal party the bride of Christ. We're headed for the rapture. If we should die before then, our spirit, which would go immediately to be with Christ, will be reunited with our glorified body, which will come shooting out of the grave and a reunion. We're headed there. Already our church family has seen several go just in the last few days who form now this welcoming committee for all of us left here waiting for our beloved. So what do we do until this time? The answer is motivation, evaluation, anticipation, exaltation. Listen to Thomas Watson as I wrap this up, a Puritan theologian and church leader. He said this, the world is but a great inn, I-N-N. The world is but a great inn where we are to lodge a night or two and be gone. What madness is it to set our heart upon this inn 
and forget our home. What madness indeed to cling to earth. What madness is coming to the planet with the thundering, galloping hoofbeats of these horsemen. We who believe in Christ will leave the madness behind. And so like the Thessalonians in chapter 1, may we be as they were, as Paul wrote, we serve the true and living God. And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, now let's sing praise to the one who comes one day, but already one who has come to dwell and live within our hearts. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now sing it out. Praise God from whom all